Welcome to Connect to Capital, the podcast brought to you by Scale Investors. I'm your host, Catherine Robson, Chair of the Scale Investors Board. Our vision at Scale Investors is to create a world where gender does not limit access to capital. We do that by putting our money where our mouth is and investing in outstanding women founders. But even more than that, we know the transformational power of collaboration and we are passionate about connecting founders with the advice, education and deep network that will enable them to thrive. In this podcast, we interview Australia's most successful and thoughtful venture investors because we believe that knowledge is power and education is a key driver in removing the investment gender gap. We hope you love this conversation and are as excited as we are about giving all entrepreneurs the opportunity to create a better future. It's time to open access. It's an extra special episode this week as we have two great investors sharing their passion for ag tech and the specialist fund they co-founded, Tenacious Ventures. The first half of today's duo is Sarah Nollett, an internationally recognised food systems innovation expert who has been instrumental in building the early stage ag tech ecosystem in Australia. From advising dozens of startups, designing accelerator programs and consulting to established agribusinesses, all the way to helping industry, universities and government develop and implement forward-looking initiatives in food system innovation. Sarah is also the host of AgTech So What, the podcast, telling stories of innovators building the food systems of the future. Sarah holds a Master's in System Design and Management from MIT and a Bachelor of Computer Science and Human Factors Engineering from Tufts University in the US. Matthew Pryor is the other half of the co-founding team at Tenacious Ventures and a partner at Agthentic. He was previously co-founder of Observant, an Australian ag tech pioneer acquired by Jane in 2017. He was the founding chair of Rocket Cedar, a food and agriculture innovation accelerator, and having achieved multiple significant exits himself, Matthew is dedicated to promoting Australian agri-food innovation globally. Both Sarah and Matthew are passionate about helping Australia take its rightful place as a leader in the technologies which will solve global food and environmental challenges. It's such an important mission. Matthew and Sarah, welcome. Great to see you. Hey, Catherine. Nice to see you. As I just said offline, this is the first time we've had one of these podcasts with two people together. So more value for listeners get both of your stories. I suppose really like to sort of start at the beginning and get a bit of an understanding of how you both came together to be working in this important space. So maybe I'll start with you, Sarah, in terms of you obviously didn't grow up in Australia. How did you end up here in Australia doing what you're doing now? didn't grow up in Australia. I'm from California, actually from Silicon Valley originally. I came here six and a half years ago now. Really, if I'm honest, uh, I wish that I could say like, you know, we saw ag tech in Australia and I moved around the world and you know, came for that opportunity. It's, it's actually not true. We moved for my um, other half's job. He had a, an opportunity to come over. I was finishing grad school, studying and working in the ag tech space. But we said, oh, you know, it'll it'll be a year on the beach at, at worst. And that seems like a pretty good deal. So we, we came over with that in mind. And in many ways, I, I was just really lucky and that Australia is fantastic at agriculture, fantastic at agricultural research, and they're 
wasn't much at that time in the way of an early stage ecosystem. And so it was a real opportunity to help bring some of my kind of business and tech background uh, into the space here and help to build the ecosystem. And that's how I you know, ended up meeting Matthew. And, and that was the origin story of what became Tenacious. And in terms of your background and being interested in ag tech, you'd studied computer science. Is that right? Yeah, I did. So not an ag background by any means. Um, I guess we I had always played sports, so I cared about food and we had a bit of a hobby farm that my dad bought. So I spent time there, but it was very much like a go make money and then do something good for the world is what I originally thought. And it wasn't until my mid twenties, I actually went on holiday to South America and ended up kind of staying unexpectedly on, I guess, an accidental gap year uh, and lived on farms and something clicked for me around the technologies I'd been working with and the systems perspective on changing different industries and was hooked on agriculture and, and haven't looked back since been, I guess, over 10 years now. And was it unusual when you decided to do computer science? Was that something because you grew up in Silicon Valley that seemed normalized or, or was that a different choice to many of your peers when you were graduating high school? It's a good question. I definitely didn't think I would study computer science. And in the States, you don't sort of pick your major before you go to school. So I went to college. Mostly I picked the best school that would also let me play the sports that I wanted to play. And that that was sort of the decision-making criteria. And your sports were soccer and? Soccer, basketball, and track. Yeah, in, in college. And so I actually, my first, I double majored. My first major was in engineering psychology, which was sort of the study of how you can make things to be better used by people. And I was really procrastinating picking a major. And it wasn't until I was sort of walking through the common area and I saw like a poster that said, like, do you ever get frustrated about like why things don't work the way they're supposed to or, you know, some kind of tagline like that. And it was some meeting for this, you know, major. And I went along to the meeting and was like, actually, this stuff's super interesting. And then the other thing that happened was the computer science department is attached to the gym. And so I ended up spending time near the computer science department and I stumbled on a lecture that one of the professors was giving and it just sounded really interesting. He seemed like a really interesting guy. And I said, oh, this computer science stuff, you know, it seems like it's pretty important for the world and, you know, where I've come from. And so maybe I'll go along to a class. And yeah, they both just really clicked. So I wouldn't say it was a particularly strategic decision for either. So for you, Matthew, you also studied computer science. How did your journey to, to where you are now start? There is actually a tenuous connection between me studying computer science and agriculture, which is that. I didn't grow up on a farm, but my parents had two hobby farms and we had enough sheep that needed to be sheared. And so I roused the shed and the very first paycheck that I ever received, I actually used to buy, and I'm going to show my age here, uh, a Dick Smith Super 80 kit computer. So PCs were so new at that time that you could really only buy them in kit form. I had, A, never had anything to do with computers, nor held a soldering iron in my life, but I somehow managed to put it together and, and kind of that was... 20 years in IT from that kind of point onwards, but then ultimately came kind of came back to agriculture after a long detour into, into tech. And you were a founder. Is that sort of, was that what you initially did when you, you finished studying? Yeah, right, right out of college, actually. I mean, somewhat coincidentally, I guess my, yeah, in a sort of similar way to Sarah, my father had kind of always said to me, like, just like be your own boss sort of thing. And so myself and two mates at a university started a company it was kind of you know early days of the, of the PC revolution. There weren't many other people doing it, so you know we we did decently well, and that kind of took us to Silicon Valley. And I kind of you know experienced that whole thing. Have done that a couple of times, and those companies co-founded and exited two companies, sort of doing that sort of full journey. One in tech, and and then one ultimately in what would become 
ag tech. And so, yeah, I feel like there's plenty of scar tissue uh, in terms of, you know, empathy for the founder journey, if you like. But the other thing also was that the second company, Observant, sort of came up much in the kind of agricultural IDC system, the system where a lot of our agricultural research is done. And especially after acquisition, I did a lot of international travel and it just knowing what I knew about how much capability we had, it used to really bug me that Australia just wasn't visible on the world stage. And so, you know, I, I guess as part of that journey of post-acquisition, what do I do next? That's kind of really what turned my mind to what's on the other side of the table kind of exploration. And especially because I just felt like, you know, we weren't really maximizing this knowledge base that we had as a country. Sometimes I think founders feel like the goal is to get to the US and stay there and grow as big as you can. Obviously, you made the choice to to exit, but then also come back to live in Australia. What what was it about Australia that was strong enough to drag you away from the sort of spiritual home of entrepreneurship in the US? I love that you asked that question because I think it's so important. I, I would say it's a question of time frame. And in fact, in my news feed this morning, I saw something about a, a New Zealand company that got acquired and the kind of narrative is, oh, yet another you know, ANZ company gets acquired by a multinational. And I think we just need to zoom out a bit and sort of say, whilst it will be true that we will need better capital markets locally, like the strength as an ecosystem that we get from allowing people to have that journey and, you know, spend their time and then come back. I mean, I came back for personal reasons because we went there with one child, we came back with three, and it is, you know, I knew nothing about being educated in the US. It was all very daunting. But, you know, and, and certainly when I came back, like there was a period of time, I actually came back, went back to the States and then came back to Australia. It was a bit embarrassing, really. That all to say, directly comparing the two doesn't make sense, but we absolutely want that process to play out and to have people come back and bring that amazing experience and not feel like they've got something to apologize for, for kind of selling out to an international company. I mean, that's just invaluable experience that our ecosystem needs. And Sarah, what's your observation coming from the US and now living in Australia? What's different and what's the same? It's an interesting one. I mean, I think the scale and the size of the ecosystem there is is just really hard to grasp. I mean, there's almost twice as many people in just California as in all of Australia. So I think there's there's just some scale factors and the amount of money that that's pretty different. I would say though that I mean, when I first came to Australia, especially in the ag tech space, I did have people say like, oh, you know, why are you going to Australia for ag tech? Like, why wouldn't you go to New Zealand? It seems like they have a better ecosystem. They've got their stuff together, et cetera, et cetera. And part of that frustration, I think, was the lack of a coordinated approach to building the ecosystem here. And so from a Silicon Valley perspective, you were getting the Queensland delegation and then the Victorian delegation, and they were so busy, you know, connecting us back to each other here that there was no kind of collaboration actually happening. And that's come so far since then. I mean, there, there truly is a, an ecosystem here. There's capital from in and outside of ag coming in the space. There's, you know, climate tech is on the radar and ag's role in that. We have multiple accelerator programs. There's the Australian Agri-Tech Association. So I think that that it is a vibrant ecosystem, that there are places to connect in and that it doesn't feel like just pockets of activity is really where a lot of those changes have been made and why I think it's exciting how much it's grown. But yeah, that scale factor. And I think the Probably the other thing is just the romanticism around entrepreneurship is still somewhat stronger in the U.S. I mean, it's truly sexy and exciting if you start a company, you know, when you leave and it's great, you know, parents don't love this and kids don't love this, but like, you know, quit your, quit your university and go start a company, like build it in the garage. You know, that's the real kind of narrative. Whereas 
in Australia, it's, you know, go through and then, you know, have a salary that allows you to buy a piece of property, right? And so I think it's a pretty different view on what entrepreneurship means. That's definitely starting to change. And it's not a statement all about the entrepreneurs, but just that kind of cultural mindset, I guess, is embedded, you know, kind of from birth in in many places in the States. And so how did you guys start working together? When I first came to Australia, I mean, I like didn't know anyone in, in the whole country. And I started looking, you know, who was doing what in ag tech. And Matthew had just written an article about a conference that he spoke at. And it was literally the only thing I could find on ag tech in anything to do with Australia. There really just wasn't much of an ecosystem at that point. And so I reached out to him. How long ago was that? Because it feels like we should have had an ag tech ecosystem for years. Yeah, sort of six and a half years ago. So yeah, it's come quite a long way. It's it's pretty cool in, in how short of a time. But yeah, I reached out and Matthew had actually, you know, I, I had said, oh, maybe we could meet up or chat. And he just sent me his phone number. He said, yeah, call me sometime. And I remember just being like, oh, he's going to have like an Australian accent. And like, it's, it was literally, I'd just been sitting in a room, not talking to any Australians. And so it was uh, useful to reach out. And um, we ended up talking about collaborating on an article, kind of guest writing a piece about comparing the drought in California to droughts in Australia and water technology. And he was coming up to Sydney in a couple weeks to a conference and very generously offered for me to come along and take his ticket for the second day because he wasn't going to be able to, to take the ticket for that day. We ended up meeting up in the next you know couple of years, every conference or ag tech meetup or pitch competition, we would end up grabbing a beer after or having a chat and, and it continued to build towards conviction of, of actually doing something together. And so Matthew, why did you want to become an investor having had, as you said, two successful exits and you know built other things? Why did you want to start investing in other people's success? Yeah, I actually after I took a I took long service leave, which is a foreign concept, obviously to you know to kind of start up land. But all that meant was like I literally switched off for kind of six weeks. I just sort of took time. I did a personal inventory. I, I was sort of going on my own journey of kind of learning and self exploration, and I started sort of journaling and just really thinking about what I enjoyed about being a founder. And I think the realization that came to me was something around a sort of multiplier of productivity. I mean, I had I had co-founded uh, was you know founding chair of Rocket Cedar and sort of had started to work with founders and had been advisor to a couple of founders. And it just so I just sort of felt this pull. And then in thinking about like literally a fork in the road, effectively to say back into the founder journey, or there was just something really appealing to sort of say gee, what extra kind of multiplier might there be or just a different role? And the more I thought about it, the kind of more appealing that felt. I mean, I, as a 52-year-old, you know, it's probably late career pivot um, in into VC, but the experience of having gone through the Launch Vic funded Rocket Seater program and just the emerging idea of a different role for me was was one of kind of leveraging a bit of experience. And also I, I had been fascinated by Investing, and of course, you know, you can learn so much remotely, but you can only learn so much remotely, right? You can you can read and you can sort of observe, but I think the just the idea of diving in and, and Sarah and I had spent so much time talking about it, we had really had conviction about the opportunity. It wasn't so clear at that time what the right way to accelerate was, but once we realised it had to be a fund, I just got pulled in by the whole by the whole idea of the opportunity you know, to, to co-found with Sarah as well as just the idea of, wow, this is going to be something completely different. And how different are the skills of an investor versus being a founder and building your own business? 
So there's, there's a bunch of technical stuff and obviously we've built the team and you know people like Vela, George have also have joined us. And so there's many areas where there are very specific technical skills and legal skills and, and all that sort of thing. Being able to assess maybe the better answer I can give is what I have found difficult. What I have found difficult is trying to be a good observer rather than problem solver and trying to translate my observations into things that can help both solve those problems, but also like develop team, develop skill, develop strategy. I think those are the things I've struggled with the most in terms of, you know, like the founder ways is like, get it done. The rest of it, like the tech, you know, the kind of technical stuff. I mean, kind of, kind of our view on some of that was like literally how hard can it be? Neither Sarah nor I had done this before. Neither the idea of being first or first time founder, a funder, um, you know, um, fund managers wasn't daunting but there is a, a ramp that you've got to get up just in terms of basic knowledge. I mean, that you can do that yourself. I don't know, like where I want to be is for our founders to think that we're great investors, right? That's the only thing that matters in the end. And I guess we won't know that for, for a while yet, but hopefully the general consensus is we're doing okay. And Sarah, I know there's sort of folklore around probably two co-founders being the ideal number of co-founders. I know, you know, Y Combinator and others sort of make it a precondition. What's your experience of being a co-founder and, and, you know, how challenging is it to work together with someone else in the way that you and Matthew work together? It's really relevant for my journey because when I came to Australia, I sort of fell into starting Agfentic, which was an advisory firm. And I was, it was just me initially and then hired a, a small team and was, but was the sole decision maker and, you know, didn't have a co-founder and just genuinely felt the stress that that put on other relationships in my life because I had like, there was nowhere for the energy to go. There was no one with whom to process things or, or share that journey. So kind of contrasting that to now having a co-founder, I think there is a lot of value in just the shared ability to share the burden. And I think the analogy of like, you kind of have to add up to a hundred every day, but like sometimes you're going to give 90 and they're going to give 10 and sometimes you're going to give 10 and they're going to give 90 and like just having someone else when you need them to give that 10 or that 90, pretty powerful. That said, like we have some incredible solo founders in our portfolio and it's not like a something we say has to be true. It's just the situation we found ourselves in and what's worked for us, but by no means is it the only path to success. And I think our experience has been those founders have cultivated different kinds of support systems around them, whether that's coaching and different kinds of advisors and peer groups of other founders who they can kind of road test things with and personal support, again, whether that's a coach or a psychologist, like I just think there's so many resources now to fill those gaps if it doesn't sort of come in the nice traditional co-founder box. And just exploring that idea, you know, Matthew, you mentioned that, you know, it takes a while, years and years to work out whether you've actually been good investors or not. What, Sarah, do you think are um, some of the hallmarks that make good venture investors or that you try to demonstrate to enhance your success as investors? The kind of overall outcome we're solving for is is combination of impact and returns. And so we, we think those two things go really hand in hand and we want to make sure that the investments we're making and the companies we're supporting are delivering both kind of climate solutions through agri-food innovation as well as returns for for them and for us and for our investors. So that's that's kind of the, I guess, the top level metrics. Along the way, there's a bunch of qualitative stuff like the strength of the relationship. Have we been supportive? Have we been able to add value? And I think probably the ways in which we've you know, we find ourselves adding value is 
sometimes the traditional stuff, we made an intro and they made a hire or we made a connection and it was a downstream investor. But in other ways, less obvious stuff like being the investor, you know, that's willing to get on the phone at 10 p.m. and help finish a document because the founder is just so tired that the words don't make sense anymore. Or, you know, like there's silly things like that where I think it's kind of being able to go on the journey and, and truly provide that support. Another one that we've, I think is juries out for us is like we've provided some tough feedback and we've been the sort of, I don't know, squeaky wheel in a couple cases. And our intention has absolutely been to get to an outcome that's going to be better in the long run. But we've found ourselves like, here's a term that we think isn't going to work long term and we're going to call it out and have the tough conversation now. And that might, and has in the moment made it seem like we're the bad guy, like we're being difficult and we're holding up the round from being closed. And what we have to continue to back is that we're doing it, we're communicating clearly, we're being transparent, we're sharing why we're doing it. It's ultimately often up to the founder and we're doing it because we believe it's going to lead to a better outcome long-term. And at least in a couple of cases where that's happened, the founder has turned around and really thanked us and said, like, I'm so glad we tackled that tough issue early because now our cap table is cleaner or the term sheet's better or whatever it is. But in those moments, I think there's a lot of doubt around, you know, are we doing the right thing or should we just sort of say yes to what the founder wants and be easier to deal with? Or is, you know, having that tough conversation actually going to be better? And Matthew, what are some of the special and different challenges that ag tech founders experience relative to founders in other areas? One of the things in a way that makes Tenacious a bit different is there aren't many sector specific firms, entire firms that focus solely on, you know, like in the broader world of, uh, of such a narrow sector. And the reason why Sarah and I felt that was important in the end was agriculture, you know, the agri-food kind of value chain is wickedly complex in and of itself. And so I think Whilst it's easy enough to sort of think about, you know, producing stuff on farm and improving efficiency there, in reality, the kind of economics of doing that at scale generally means solving things at multiple points along the supply chain. And sometimes founders themselves, you know, may not have the full appreciation of that. They might have focused more on the kind of innovation part and and might really struggle with solving for that that kind of go-to-market or business model. The second also is that some of that complexity brings with it difficulties in downstream investors. So when, when you kind of get into the scale, so, you know, we're largely pre-seed and seed and coming in early and we want to stay on as long as we can, but obviously that, you know, the fund is only so big. So some of that complexity also makes for perhaps more challenging fundraising downstream where, you know, larger funds, but possibly more generals possibly, you know, don't have a well-formed hypothesis about how important methane emissions are in livestock. And, you know, we all think about red meat and everyone's been part of a conversation around the pluses and minuses from an environmental or health point of view about eating red meat, animal meat. But that's very different from is seaweed really the solution or is it going to be an mRNA vaccine and, you know, why backing you know, one initiative over another might have advantages. And just in terms of your in investment sweet spot, how much do you calibrate towards tech and how much do you calibrate towards ag? You know, because presumably there's some businesses that really look like an agricultural operation with a tiny bit of tech on the side as compared to something that's very deep tech. We are an impact fund and so we're looking for scale. We have to believe that the founders are capable of delivering a compelling solution to market that will achieve scale. And so normally we find that that's going to have an element of technological innovation, but also an element of business model innovation. 
And so it really needs to be both. One of the things that is interesting about agriculture in Australia, you know, we're a pretty large agricultural economy. And so it's, it's possible to build a successful business in Australia, but it may not have those core elements that mean you can scale it well globally. And, and, and you know, in particular, because some parts of ag in Brazil or Canada or you know, other really large agricultural economies work very differently. And so if you've kind of gone to market with a very specific kind of solve, it may not be a solve for those markets where retailing is totally different or manufacturing power is concentrated somewhere else. An interesting insight we had recently was we talk about digitally native agriculture and the temptation is to sort of think about that as it's like digitizing everything. But what we really mean is kind of digital technology has been unleashed. You, you can look at agriculture in a completely different way. And you can see it at a scale and at a, you know, it just opens up new ways of doing things. And those new ways might still be mechanical or physical. In fact, some of it might even be back to going to sort of old ways of doing things, you know, like mechanically chipping out weeds rather than trying to spray them, but on an autonomous robotic vehicle. And so it's, yeah, it's not necessarily that it's indexing exactly for technology, but thinking about the role of technology in, in offering new pathways you know, transformation um, possibility. And Sarah, can you, are there some companies you've invested in that sort of are good demonstrations of, of either technological innovation together with business model innovation? Yeah, I would say that that's pretty characteristic of, of most of the companies in our portfolio. So Matthew touched there on autonomy. We've invested in a company, actually a husband and wife co-founder team, Andrew and Jossie Bate from Queensland, and they have built a business called Swarm Farm Robotics. And it is, the view is, or what they make is autonomous agricultural vehicles. So small scale, fully autonomous robots that can do a variety of jobs on farm. And if you think about the way the kind of iPhone works, you know, your phone comes with a couple apps on it, but there's a whole ecosystem now of other people developing apps that can go on the iPhone. And that's really their vision with how the future of autonomous agriculture will work is they, you might have the base bot that does, you know, a couple of jobs, but there's a whole ecosystem of regional entrepreneurs building different kinds of apps that can go onto the bot. And like Matthew said, that opens up whole new ways of farming. So right now, you know, farmers are constrained to manage weeds based on the labor they have and the, the capital efficiency of equipment and, and kind of certain constraints that they're facing. But in a world where the robot can go out 24-7 and knows where the weeds are before they even emerge, you can zap the weed seed bank with a microwave or a laser or chip it out with a mechanical chipper. And those different apps might have been developed by a local farmer or a local TAFE project or whatever it might be. And so they're really creating this whole ecosystem of digitally native operations on the farm enabled through that autonomous platform. So I think the combination of their technology that's you know made by farmers for farmers, uh, as well as that business model insight of let's ship it to any farmer anywhere in the world and enable others to develop and add value to this ecosystem is exactly the kind of thing that we look for. And Matthew, I know you're not supposed to ask this for investors, but any favorite companies you've got that you could talk about? That is a difficult question to be asked. My cop-out answer is what I really enjoy is the fact that it's a kind of journey. And so when we first started talking about Tenacious, people say, oh, how can you possibly be hands-on in supporting that many companies? And the reality is that you kind of go through periods where it is really hands-on, but hands-on for different reasons. So Rapid Aim would be a good example where when we first became investors, Nancy Shellhorn, the co-founding CEO, and I were continuously talking about, you know, really pretty kind of down in the weeds stuff about 
go-to-market strategy and, and that kind of thing. And the wonderful thing about how that relationship has evolved is as Nancy has kind of built the team out, you know, my role is just moves much more into a kind of strategic role. And, you know, we still meet kind of roughly every week, but the the conversation, the you know, kind of nature of the conversations has changed. Whereas say with Giora, who's a much more recent conversation, the conversations that I will have with Bridie, once again, you know, every week, every other week are much more back down in the, okay, so why would it be helpful to think about a go-to-market strategy this way or how do we harness kind of network growth in thinking differently about how customers can talk to each other or all that kind of stuff. And I think that's probably the enjoyable part is like, you know, back to one of your earlier questions, which was what was the point of doing this? So to some extent it's been growth for me as well, which is understanding that, you know, there's still kind of ways to contribute value invest in someone else's growth and to the extent that I'm doing that, that's a very enjoyable part of the job. Sarah, I know you guys invest sort of in that seed and even pre-seed stage. What's too early? Like what, you know, people listening who are in that ag tech space, do you invest in something if it's only just an idea? What do you need to see before you feel confident investing? Good question. And our answer is always changing as we get challenged on, you know, what we put on paper and then what the real world shows us. So I would say we, it can be super early. I mean, companies that in the physical world only have a PowerPoint deck, we actually have invested even that early. What we you know, if it is going to be that early, the kind of other factors that need to tip the the teeter-totter over to a yes would be the kind of track record of the team, the experience of the team, the kind of quality of the insight and the rigor behind which they've developed that insight. So if they've been working in that sector for 20 years and, you know, they've seen this problem over and over and they've come up with this new way to solve it, that's pretty different than someone wakes up and rolls over and, you know, makes PowerPoint. So I would say the other thing we look for is how much they've sort of tested their insider hypothesis with the market. And that goes to all the way through to revenue as in a company might have offered a product and not actually gotten paid for it. But in the early stages, you know, what are the characteristics of the conversations with customers or potential customers? Has the customer sort of started to show commitment through spending time, a letter of intent, spending money, changing their operations, starting to act differently. Like those are really good signs from our perspective that even though the widget or the, you know, the product doesn't exist yet, that the demand really is there. So I think there's kind of different scales of conviction that we look for. And at the early stages, if, if a few of the scales aren't fully tipped, but other ones are, then we actually can get over that line and, and invest even really, really early. And are there companies that are too developed that are beyond your stage? Is it just a sort of size of check issue or is it because you don't feel like you can have the, the same sort of positive impact that you might if they were earlier on? Yeah, I think that it's probably a combination of both the, the check size and the, you know, h- how it works for our fund is definitely something that's been challenging for us. I mean, Matthew and I know, have had a couple examples of companies that like when they were raising their early rounds, we didn't yet have the fund. And so by the time we could invest, they were a bit later. And, you know, is it a fit for us? And in a couple of cases, it still was. And in a couple of cases, it wasn't. They had just kind of moved beyond where the economics for our fund made sense. And in other cases, yeah, it might be that, you know, value add, like, are they the kind of time they're going to need and the kind of dedication they're going to need from an investor sort of needs to be matched to that check size. And so, you know, if we're not really able to manifest our conviction, both in dollar terms and in time terms, then are we really the best fit for, for that company? Um, Matthew, before you mentioned a term I hadn't heard someone use before, multiplier of creativity, and it's just such a nice term. 
Can you share with us anything that you have observed in the founders or that you do yourself that's a real expander of productivity and capability and creativity? I'm working with a coach at the moment on values-based journaling and the, and the first part of that was narrowing down the list of personal values and I, that was a decently difficult process but one of them that kept coming up for me was creativity which was a little bit confounding because thinking too hard about exactly what that is got got me confused. I, I think what we love to see in founders is, I mean, obviously there's, there's examples like outside thinking and, and actually to, to almost backtrack a little bit to one of your previous questions, in a way, maybe it's some, somewhere between creativity and manifestation, right? Your job as a founder is sort of to convince enough people that something is going to be true sort of before it's true enough for most people to see. And that that absolutely requires creativity. And I think it also requires an ability to sort of harness other people's passion and harness other people's, like Sarah Sarah referred to before, like I may not be getting revenue, but I can still demonstrate to you, to these other people, why they need to change what they're doing. They believe so strongly, A, in what I'm telling them, but B, in my ability to deliver it that they're already going about changing the way. So I think those are really big multipliers because otherwise you kind of get bogged down this, oh, well, show me your revenue and show me your growth. And that sort of ends up being this almost impossible circular loop to get out of. The other would be, I think, you know, early investments in in company culture, you know, that requires kind of presence and vision and creativity, but as a multiplier, some of our culture is obsessed and I'm personally probably too obsessed about like personal productivity and all this kind of stuff. But the biggest multiplier is, you know, an awesome team that communicates really well. And Sarah, what about multipliers for you? Anything that you'd add to that list? Yeah, well, as Matthew was just talking there, I was thinking about some of the ways that our founders have been creative in like just really fun, surprising ways. Just just two examples. I mean, GoTerra is one of our portfolio companies and one of the GoTerra company values is do the maggot mass. And just this kind of manifestation of like, we work with physical things and the ways things may or may not work isn't because of something we can sort of sit in a room thinking about, but we've got to get out there and get our hands dirty. And it's just like such a good example of both that culture, but also creativity and doing it in such an authentic way for their business and and for what they're trying to build. We had another founder the other day, we've got shared Slack channels with some of our companies and they sent through these drawings that the team did over a team lunch of, and they're like, you know, kids cartoon drawings, but it was just an exercise they did in kind of brainstorming different, different product roadmap ideas and trying to put themselves in the mind of the user and what are features they haven't thought of. And I just love that. Like, it's just such a, for us, our founders are often multipliers of creativity. Like we see stuff they do and we go, wow, we either could operate more like that as a team, or how could we take that lesson and roll it out for other companies? And so, yeah, get get a lot of inspiration from them. I I can't help but go back, Matthew, and just ask for any other productivity tools that you can recommend. Because for anyone that wants to achieve lots, time seems to be the limiting factor. So any other specific tools or practices that you use that help you achieve more? Well, I'm actually repping Michael Batko's Puddle Pod, which I, I got a lot out of. I think... I would say community, you know, those kind of communities like that where people are getting together. Because the thing is, well, that I have learned is that a specific tool can be a distraction because people sort of think that the productivity is in the tool. I think the productivity comes from systematically thinking about your operating system, as Becca would say, and then 
what of the 20 or 30 or 40 choices that you've got will really deliver a premium. I'm a pretty heavy user of Roam Research and I really like the way that it organizes my day. But I mean, it's almost a coding environment. It's, it's very, very tailored to how I want to organize my day. It would be useless to anybody else in its, in its current form. And it's not the kind of thing that we could roll out at a company level the way I'm using it. But in terms of, you know, how it organizes my day, how I can track notes from one meeting to, a ne- to the next and quickly find things that kind of link together. So that ability for it to be really tailorable, I think, is the other thing too, which is moving along really quickly in that kind of personal productivity tool space, which is the kind of degree to which you can tweak and tailor those things to suit your specific needs or your kind of personal preferences or idiosyncrasies, if you like. Sarah, what about tools and resources for founders that you recommend or that you just enjoy for yourself? So books, podcasts, things that you've done and experience that you've got a lot out of. Hmm, yeah. One of the things that's been truly transformational in my career is finding the the time to create content. And so whether that's a LinkedIn post or a Twitter thread or a podcast or a newsletter, I just couldn't feel more strongly that finding the time to, in whatever format, drawings, it doesn't really matter, kind of process your thoughts and get them out there for the world, like attracts like-minded people around you, creates more leads, like builds a brand for yourself, helps create culture for the company. Like there's just so many reasons. So I would say that's, and everyone does that differently. So a number of tools kind of underpinning that. But I love nowadays that it can be a Twitter thread with pictures or a podcast where you don't have to show your face or write anything. And and there's just lots of different mediums to do that. In terms of specific kind of productivity tools, I mean, I use the um, Remarkable tablet uh, that I'm a huge fan of. I'm a big take notes to process things kind of person. It needs to get that tactile feel for me. And I just was struggling with the stylus on the iPad. So I was a Remarkable user, I don't know, back in 2018 or something with the first version. So big fan of that. I mean, in terms of books, I think Never Split the Difference is one that I often recommend and just a pretty valuable kind of negotiating book. I'm reading How to Think in Bets, which is another one that I'm excited about. Former professional poker player, um, Annie Duke, and her kind of wisdom applied to business from from that world. So yeah, a couple, couple on my mind. And spook your podcast, Sarah. <laughs> yes. Uh, so we, our podcast is called Ag Tech So What? And most recently you hear a lot of Matthew on there. So trying to bring his voice and insights in more. And I, I guess a, another multiplier of creativity, like I think we both find it pretty valuable to bounce ideas off of each other. And <clears throat> more recently we've found a way to hit record on that and get some of it out to the world, not just do it behind closed doors. Yeah, I think it's fantastic. So Matthew, what about you? Books, podcasts, other content? What works for you that you would recommend to others? Well, I mean, my journey kind of into VC was definitely book heavy. I don't know, controversial slash annoying that Jason Calacanis can be the angel book. You know, I found incredibly helpful just from a content point of view. There's plenty there. You can kind of take or leave some of the more edgy parts of, of, of what he says. From a kind of personal development point of view, I found the book called Triggers really transformational and just kind of thinking through you know, how, to, how to go about introducing change into your life. I mean, 20 minute, you know, depending on you know, kind of wanting to understand the insides of VC, 20 minute VC is a great podcast to just get an inside track on how venture capital works and how, how people think human stories, heavyweight is my current kind of go-to. Um, what advice do you have for entrepreneurs who are thinking about raising capital? Yeah, I, we have this conversation on a, on a on a very regular basis. I would I would say I would 
contextualize this as now advice for this period that we're coming into, which I think is now more than ever raising, well, venture in particular, but getting investment is a sales process and developing absolute clarity around the personas for the participants that you think are really going to participate in this environment. So what do you mean by that? We're still in a period of uncertainty. We're sort of far enough into it now that most VCs will have battened down the hatches, so to speak, on their current portfolio. Now, that will have taken a whole lot of different forms, but effectively they'll, they'll sort of generally be thinking they've done what's necessary. They've talked to the founders and sort of thought about, you know, what does 24 months, 36 months of kind of runway look like? And then thought about that in terms of their own fund, how far through their fund they are, therefore what allocations they might still need to hold in reserve in the world where fundraising is hard. So age of a fund will have a big impact there. And then it's like, okay, once all that has taken place, who's going to be writing checks and why? Why will they be writing checks right now? And I think that some people will be very cautious. Some people will be thinking about, you know, current portfolio and and keeping dry powder. Some people will be thinking now is a fantastic time to be building companies, some of the absolute best companies. You know, if you're like us and you're thinking about climate and ecological sustainability, you know, we don't have three years to wait, right? We have to be actively investing now and we have to be looking for transformational early stage companies. And so I would put us in that kind of true believer camp. Now, it could be, doesn't matter what the true belief is. So then thinking about from the founder point of view, whatever business plan it is that you're trying to raise money for has to resonate with the persona. And that is okay. The reality is that we need money and this is going to be very effective, you know, buying for you. And, and you know, it's, it's kind of a accepting the reality of life kind of view, or it might be true belief like it would be for, you know, a climate tech or, or you know, sustainability aligned kind of agricultural innovation. We know that you know that we can't wait. We've got foot to the floor here. This business plan is to achieve these four things that will absolutely unlock that next level of impact and returns, that sort of thing. So that's what I mean about, sorry, that was an overlong answer, but it's so important now to not waste time with people who aren't actually going to write a check. Yeah, and in some ways, even though it's specific to right now, it's sort of timeless because if you do that well, it's always going to help. Sarah, what's your advice to founders thinking about raising, especially at the seed, pre-seed stage? I think one is, is pretty common advice, but I couldn't believe in it more, which is like get to know investors before you're raising. Like when we've known a founder for a while and then they start to move towards raising, like our motivation to move faster, to prioritize that time, to make sure we're in that round, like goes, it goes a long way because we, we do know that founder and we know that we've got conviction on, on, you know, what they're doing. I would say the other one, maybe to Matthew's point is like, it is a sales process. And so while it's super tempting to take any indication of like next steps as a positive thing, I almost advise like flipping it the other way is like make an investor tell you why they're a yes as opposed to whatever they say you sort of get excited is going to progress the conversation so that might look like you know at the end of the conversation saying on a scale of one to ten you know where are you up to and if they're a six like okay what's preventing you from being a seven or an eight or like from the start of this call to the end of this call have you gained conviction or lost conviction okay if you gained it like great what else like what would you need to take the next step like sort of make them 
think about what, where they're up to and tell you in no uncertain terms kind of where they're at in that process. Same thing, give them homework, like, awesome, this call went really well. Like, could you come back for me with some references for your founders or with uh, resources you might have on this space? You mentioned a couple podcasts you've done or whatever it is, because if they're not willing to go pull together two podcast episodes or make an intro for you, they're definitely not going to invest. And so find those little hurdles that you can give them an opportunity to jump over so that you both are building conviction towards that partnership, as opposed to feeling like it's a bit of a black hole where you don't really know where, where you stand with them. That's such great advice. So Sarah, last question for you. What are you really optimistic and excited about? Hmm. I'm really excited about the non-traditional from a venture perspective, solutions we're seeing to, to climate change. I mean, we started Tenacious with a belief that we needed to think about this industry differently. We needed to have more deep tech, have different business models, have more female founders. And that stuff wasn't, you know, we didn't solve for that, but we kind of knew that that was going to be part of the solution. And it's absolutely playing out like 60% of our portfolio companies have female founders or co-founders, like half of them are deep tech companies. All of them are truly aligned in, in their bones to, to providing solutions to climate change. And it's probably our founders, you know, despite the ups and downs that, that really give me a lot of optimism is they're fighting the battles day in and day out to make this stuff real. And it's, it's really high potential stuff that we truly see could change the world. And that's, that's pretty exciting. And so Matthew, last word to you, what are you really optimistic and excited about? I think excited that Australia will take its kind of rightful place on the podium as as a originator of planetary scale impact solutions in in agri food. <laughs> it was frustrating to kind of be in those rooms and and know there was so much more potential. And, you know, like we're not there, but boy, we're, we're in such a different place. The agri-tech or ag tech as a phrase is in common use in kind of government and policy and investment circles. You know, there's hundreds and hundreds of companies that kind of self-identify as being part of the ecosystem in Australia. I, I'm just, I'm so excited by the momentum and, and so, yeah, so optimistic about what the next kind of five and 10 years will bring. Well, thank you. It's such great advice. And, um, you know, it feels like you're collectively being the midwife to that success for Australia. So um, it's brilliant, the work that you're doing. Thanks so much. Yep. Thanks, Catherine. Yeah, I really appreciate the chance to chat today. Thanks, Catherine. We hope you loved today's conversation as much as we did and are fired up to take your startup journey to the next level. As an investment network founded by women, no one better understands what it takes for women-led startups to thrive, like scale investors. We believe education is a key driver in removing the investment gender gap. That's why we created Scale Educated, an education platform with online courses for both founders and investors. If you're a woman founder, Scale has two education programs. Scale Founded, a five-day short course combining one-hour live webinar sessions delivered by experienced investors and founders, access to an online education platform, and the opportunity to network with trailblazing women entrepreneurs. Scale Founded is launching in February 2022. The other exciting program is Scale Empowered, a 10-week facilitated series, an opportunity to put your learnings into the context of your own startup with a cohort of incredible women entrepreneurs by your side. You can find all of the information and register on our website, www.scaleinvestors.com.au.